Welcome. You're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. I'm Jamie Brazil, your host. Today, we have a special guest, Susan Fader, founder of Fader Focus. For the last 34 years, Susan has run Fader Focus as a business strategist and transformationalist catalyst, specializing in qualitative methods and strategic consulting. She helps clients achieve focus and get, in quotation marks, unstuck, reframing their energies, your energies. Also, helping them with really addressing the confirmational bias that all of us have when we're approaching specific problems or market challenges. One of the things that I found really stand outish about Susan is she applies a no holds barred or no sacred cows view or approach to the problems that her clients are facing or even the market is facing more broadly. And, and so with that kind of a framework, it really allows someone to come in with a fresh perspective and reframe for us as researchers or as executives, the market, what they want and what we can deliver to them. And so with that, Susan, I wanted to welcome you to the Happy Market Research Podcast. Thank you. Very excited to be here. The Michigan State University's Master of Science in Marketing Research Program delivers the number one ranked insights and analytics degree in three formats, full-time on campus, full-time online, and part-time online. New for 2022, if you can't commit to their full degree program, simply begin with one of their three core certifications, Insights Design or Insights Analysis. In addition to the certification, all the courses you complete will build towards your graduation. If you're looking to achieve your full potential, check out MSNMU's program at broad.msu.edu slash marketing. Again, broad.msu.edu slash marketing. HubUX is a research operations platform for private panel management, qualitative automation, including video audition questions, and surveys. For a limited time, user seats are free. If you'd like to learn more or create your own account, visit hubux.com. In April 2021, Quirks published an article that you wrote. The title of the article is, One of These Things is Not Like the Other, Using Cognitive Demographics to Reframe How We Think of and Categorize People. Now, in this particular article, you compare the traditional approach to segmentation, which as my as the audience knows, and of course all of us know, is largely framed around demographics like gender, age, household income, attitudes, usage, that sort of stuff, right? And you had a new approach that you introduced, this cognitive dissonance sort of framework that the article then moved from that to a self-defined or how we view, consumers view, and, and we view, I'm a consumer as well, how we view ourselves and how we view the world. And so really it's this like, this juxtaposition of like who gets to define the world and the consumer. Is it the brand that defines them or is it the individual who defines it? And the core issue really centers around that, right? So the brands, they create business units around their view of the world versus how the consumer frames themselves and frames their world. You call this cognitive demographics, and this really helps brands understand how consumers self-affiliate and make decisions. So my first question for you is, did I get it right? And how did you come up with cognitive demographics as an approach? 
So uh, let me just tweak something that you said. It's more about the reality is we have to categorize in order to process any information. And if you think of uh, yourselves as a little child, you were grouping by colors and grouping by shapes because otherwise you have absolute chaos. Businesses are set up as business units and they have to create you know, some sanity. So they group, but those groupings are based on the needs of the business units. And traditional demographics now, they, they think by just putting an attitudinal question in or here or there or a frequency question, they're getting information about people. However, they're not taking into account that people demographically can be the same yet make decisions differently. One of my classic examples is mom mottos. If you ask a mom what her motto is and one says, I go with the flow and the other says, I'll do anything for my kids. It doesn't matter if they're the same, you know, same demographically, they're making purchases decisions totally differently and they're seeing the world totally differently. And that's what I think a lot of companies are missing out. You raise a really important point, which is demographics or segmentation. It it creates a framework by which we're able to understand and internalize the world and make decisions about that. How much of the difference between traditional segmentation and your alternative approach is centered around around the psychological framework as opposed to the more traditional demographic approach? So first of all, I'm not saying throw out traditional demographics. Traditional demographics have a role. They will always have a role. However, what I'm saying is you need to stand back and understand what I call people's hierarchy of values. There's some just basic things that exist, you know, family, work, religion type of things. But what the priority someone puts on it makes a difference. Like if you put family first and you're living in Ohio and you're making $47 an hour and the factory closes and they offer to move you to Texas for the same thing and you say you don't want to move, an outsider would say, how irrational is that person being? But if family is most important to you and all your family lives in Ohio, then it's a very rational decision for you. So I think What happens is with behavioral economics and behavioral science, we as the outsiders, as researchers and marketers are making judgment calls on people's behavior and saying it's irrational because it's by our metrics. But if we understand how they see the world, they are making a rational decision for themselves, even if we as outsiders don't think it's rational. And that's the part I think that a lot of marketers are missing. Yeah. The issue for me as a practitioner is, is the delta or the difference between the approaches, is it binary, meaning it's this versus that? And it sounds to me like that's not the case. It sounds like it's additive, meaning we take the current segmentation approach and then we layer into this the self-affiliation and how we make decisions as, as part of the bundling of the segments. But there also has to be at the starting point, the recognition that companies have set up segmentations to match their businesses. Mm. So if you at least start with that, it gives you the ability to stand back, okay, this fits our business need. Let's just make sure that's how whoever we're talking to or our consumers, it fits their worldview too. 
that's the way they're seeing the category. That's the way they're making decisions. So let's talk a little bit about the hierarchy of values. I liked your example of the two different types of moms, right? The mottos that you had, you had articulated. How does that influence how people make choices? Well, I just gave the example of if family's most important to you, you're not going to move. And if family, if job was most important, you would move. So that is an example of that. But there's also the analytical and holistic way how people are making purchase decisions. And I don't think that's in most companies incorporated. They just look at what the final decision is and they don't look at the pathway of how people have made a decision. And the example I have in that article is analytical is linear. It's based on rules, while holistic is you're stepping back and seeing the big picture. So an example of that, if you had a pig, dog, and apple, what is commonality? If you're linear analytical, you'd group the pig and the dog together because they're both animals. But holistic would group a pig and a dog together because the dog protects the pig, which is the end result, the answer is the same, but the whole thinking and the worldview is radically different. And that's what I think is also missing in traditional demographics. They're not understanding how people make decisions can be radically different and still arrive at the same decision. But then it impacts what your touch points are in terms of how you communicate with them and what products they want to see. One of the things that I've been finding very interesting as I've been getting to know Gen Z through research over the last couple of years is, and this actually just hit me a week ago, which is sad. We as researchers or marketers, we need to spend time getting to know our customer. And the reason why is because we can then internalize their points of view as opposed to just saying, okay, a 50-year-old male, they're at this life stage and this is the thing that they want which in a lot of ways, you know, it's going to stick some of the time, but not most of the time, and maybe even offensive in, in today's frameworks. So the point is that marketers, branding professionals, companies need to take into account the, like get to know, like at a, at a relational level, what makes people tick, why they're buying the things that they're buying. Are they a good fit for your brand, product, service, what, whatever it is that you're trying to sell them? The challenge, if that's true, if, if for a researcher is, is how do you structure an ongoing relationship? Because relationships are, you know, basically over time, right? They're not just the one and done in a research brief. How do you structure that research so that it is an evolution as opposed to, you know, more of this PL or or specific Q1 perspective? Well, I think. Part of it is we're living in a world of so much data that there seems to be a race to see how much data you can collect and then use all these AI and technological tools to analyze you know, the frequency and all that. And what gets lost is the individual. Is the, you know, one of the things we were at a conference, I think you were up on the stage, and one of the comments was people are not sample. People are people. And each person is different. And we have to listen better and not assume what was valid a year ago is valid now. And I, I think that gets lost, especially when you're fielding 
a lot of research. You just keep building on what the past without stepping back and saying, are our assumptions still correct of who the people are we want to talk to, who the competitives are? Are they thinking the same way? Just because you're P&G and have a warehouse of data on how people do laundry doesn't mean you should stop investigating because things can change. Yeah. And and then the challenge, of course, is you got to rethink your whole market research plan on an annual basis, right? Because Mm -hmm. you're talking about a conversation as opposed that is, again, over time, it's a relationship as opposed to, okay, I've got this new product. What does the market think about it? There needs to be a balance of quantitative is very, very important, but you need to incorporate qualitative and qualitative. You have to make sure you're not just doing question, answer, question, answer. True qualitative is really about wide open listening. And in the beginning, letting the people you're talking to define who they are and the pathway the conversation is going to be. I think of qualitative as a long hallway with many doors, and and each door is numbered, and behind each door is a different area of questioning. And the way we operate is you work out a guy, and you're supposed to ask it very linear. But that might be how people think. And if you're asking very linear, people put horse, horse blinders on, and they say, oh, they only want me to talk about this, so I'm only going to talk about this. But if you let the person start the conversation, they might start at door five and then go to door seven and then go to a door you didn't even know. And you're going to uncover a lot more than if you say, let's go to door, hold their hand, door one, door two, door three, door four. So at the beginning of any qualitative work I do, what I'm doing is not data gathering. I'm not doing an icebreaker. I'm giving people a framework which to share their perceptions. If I'm doing the flu vaccine, it can be what are five randomly different things that are going through your head when you think of the flu vaccine? Just let them tell you, share, and then you kind of get a baseline of where they're thinking. Another thing you have to do is a check-in and make sure terms, the way you use a term or taxonomy is the same as they see it. And one of the classic examples, I do a lot of work in financial services, is that Financial services, if you ask people what it is, nine out of 10 people will forget to include insurance. So if you're having a conversation and you haven't defined it, the people you're talking to might not even be thinking about insurance, which means your feedback is totally messed up. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like the words that we use is really important because they offer an insight into how a human frames and understands the world. Right, right. And that's another thing that's very important. If you have terminology, I don't define it for them. I ask them first how they would define it. And then if it's different, I say, well, for this, they haven't included insurance. I'll say for this conversation, we are going to include insurance. And it's important to have them first answer and then for you to then redefine, and then it becomes sticky. But if I started out and said, oh, financial services include insurance, you're going to go, oh, yeah, I knew that. Yeah. But they didn't know that. They kind of need like the little shock of, oh, I forgot it. I won't forget it now. So there's a process of just don't ask questions, 
you have to have more of a storytelling structure where they and a framework where they can determine the pathway of how the conversation is going to be and clarity on the terms. I chaired this year the MRMW's North America Conference at Gallup headquarters in Washington, D.C. In that, they had the head of insights from Monalise present, and he talked about the growing importance and utilization of qualitative research in Mondelez at a global level. The interesting thing for me was that they're winning by subtraction, meaning they are reducing the number of actual questions inside of their discussion guides and leaving white space for the person, the participants to be able to just articulate their points of view and really explore whatever direction the participant wants to to see things. Is, is that kind of what you mean by a long hallway with many doors? Yes. And one of the things I know there's the big joke about people getting 13 page guides and how you're supposed to do it. I get 13 page guides all the time, but I have permission from my clients to do it whichever way I want, as long as I cover everything. And I have found by doing the upfront, where letting them initially lead, usually get 80% of what you're looking for unaided basis. And I think that's what Mondelez is talking about. It's enabling people, getting out of the question answer and having a conversation with people. But again, you have to provide a framework to start the conversation because people are not storytellers and you'll just get yes, no, and you just have to let them step back and kind of think for a moment. It's very challenging because oftentimes the 13-page discussion guide, which of course I've done a lot of, embarrassingly so by the way, is being driven by a client who is entering into the research with a bias naturally. In other words, they think they already know all the right questions to ask. They just need the answers to it. And inherently, in a qualitative framework, that just oftentimes isn't accurate. I spend a lot of time redefining what the research objectives are because they come in and they have research objectives and a list of questions many times that they think that are going to get them the answer. So it's not getting the white space in the guide. It's what is the research objective? Why are you asking it? What are you going to do with the information? How is it going to impact? And once you get clarity around that, and then you kind of, there's an insurance. I'm going to cover all the errors you want. I'm just not going to ask the questions the way you have them. And it's part of it is building a relationship with the client, which I've done over the years. But I have permission to, if there are, one section has 10 questions and I've framed it a different way and haven't asked them exactly that, but I've covered all those areas. That's a much better way than asking 10 questions. Who wants to be asked, what do you think? How do you feel? Why? It's boring. It's not a conversation. You're being interrogated. No one wants to be interrogated. You start getting very defensive and hold back what you're going to share. But if you're having a conversation and you're giving people the opportunity to lead and it creates really something engaging and you hear things. I recently was talking at a virtual conference or actually, sorry, it was a webinar done with, with wire. And in that, one of the things that, that surfaced is that in a B2B framework, meaning that, you know, companies that are selling big things like an Oracle to 
Apple or or what have you, right? So these these big transactions, they are oftentimes reduced to an emotional decision, meaning that the buyer is framing out is is this what I need? Does it meet the basic criteria? And then from there, they're making an emotional decision that is driving oftentimes something beyond what's on the terms of trade. So it might be something like, is this going to be good for my career? Is this going to make my life better? Am I going to be able to sleep better at night? Like these intrinsic sort of drivers that never surface or even are articulated in the sales process. So, you know, whether we're thinking about the cereals that consumers buy or the next million dollar annual contract that they're going to sign, a lot of times the actual purchase decision is being made at an emotional level as opposed to an intellectual level. Are there tools or tips or tricks that you use in order to help surface those things while you're doing your qualitative? Yes, it really goes back to the beginning where you set the tone. And based on how the person is answering, then you frame what you're doing. In a way, in qualitative research, I believe you have to be a chameleon and you have to adjust to the tempo of the person. You know, some people need more time to think, some people more fast paced. Some people want to give long answers. Some people want to give short answers. Some people need a little more hand-holding in terms of giving them a framework to answer or more setup. And there has to be a recognition that you do that and you're respecting the person you're having a conversation with. And I think that's incredibly important. And you touched on really functional and emotional benefits. A lot of companies are about functional. You know, we've made it better, it's stronger, it's faster. And they leave out people really making decisions on emotional. You know, people buy products that aren't necessarily best, but emotionally they connect with it. You know, it might be a better design or that's a color they like type of thing, or it's from a store, they like the salesperson. So that is not factored in enough into how companies position and develop products, nor in the conversations they have with consumers. Let's talk about podcasts. One of the things that I like are podcasts. I feel like they're underutilized in a business context remarkably. I actually think they're in a very effective way to communicate insights, which I don't think anybody's doing, by the way. I'm probably wrong, but I haven't heard of it. What I mean by that is imagine if you're doing a research presentation and you were to take that presentation, convert it into a podcast, and then let you know, your stakeholders distribute that to their internal stakeholders for passive consumption. It could be an interesting way of a medium by which people consume insights, but that's not really the core of my question. Sorry. <laughs> what do you see as the role of podcasts in helping businesses get a better handle on who people are? Oh, I think podcasts are the diamond in the rough. They are the most unbelievable source of information. There's a podcast on anything for any demographic. I mean, there could be a podcast of people who are bird watchers who have red hair. I mean, type of thing. You can go to such specific things. So if you're going into a category, you want to know about something, you can really go there for like, if you are, one of the things in the last couple of years has been people drinking pickle juice for electrolytes and energy. 
And that came out of really listening to weightlifters and seeing what they were doing. And it was a byproduct that they were using as a source of energy, but it came out of listening to that specific group of people. How would pickle makers know how to do that? They learned from the weightlifters. That is so interesting. I've never heard that before. If you're interested in any demographic, listen to the podcast. Listen to the conversations people are having. And you will learn so much. It's- That's fascinating. It's like, I've never, I can't believe this. I've never even, as a podcaster for years, I've never considered using a podcast as my a source for secondary research. They're incredible. And just listening to these, un, you know, you know, these free-flowing conversations and the subjects they talk about and who they have on, and you can really learn a lot. Because it's a true conversation about people who are passionate about something. How do you frame out your methodology to your customers? Is it is it fairly detailed where it's like, okay, we're going to do secondary research with you know podcasts, Google Analytics, whatever, and then that's going to feed into a round of qual, and then that's going to go into something, or is it loose more? Is it different? First of all, I always give options. If you get an RFP, generally a lot of times are very specific on what they want. So I always answer that. And then I generally give at least two other options based on what I'm seeing, my experience. And also one of the things I always build in is time to get clarity and buy in from everyone on what the uh, research objective is. And there can only be one primary research objective, and there can be two or three secondary. And that really determines the hierarchy of the methodology. And sometimes I've spent as long as two weeks with a client getting clarity on that. But once you have clarity on that, everything else falls into place and determines what can be done. And it determines whether you're doing individual interviews, whether you're doing groups, whether you're doing an online board, whether you want to do something in person, whether you don't, whether it can go straight to quantitative. But there's not enough time spent on getting clarity on the research objectives and what is going to be done with the results and why they're even doing the research. I have a consulting customer. They just use me for hours to give them feedback you know, on a monthly basis. And so it's, it's varying the types of things they asked me for. This morning, they had a survey and they wanted to get my feedback on the survey. And so they started the conversation looking at Q1, Q2. And I immediately, at that point, I'd stopped them. I said, let's write at the top of the survey what the objective of the research is. It completely changed all the questions that were asked. Right. Right. And that's what happens is people generally take whatever stated as research, as a given, you can't take it as a given. You have to kind of, you know, that's where all my strategic and business consulting comes in. It's like, guys, let's think this through. Let's understand. Let's get clarity. Who are all the people involved? Let's make sure we get buy-in from everyone so that no one says at the end, oh, I thought we were going to get this, or why didn't we get this, or why didn't we do this? You have to get make sure everyone buys in and agrees. That's well said and sage advice. Our guest today has been Susan Fader, 
founder of Fader Focus. Susan, thank you for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast. Thank you so much. It's really been fun. Everyone else, I'm hoping to secure Susan on a quarterly or maybe even more frequent basis. I'm not sure what we're going to call it. Susan's Corner, something like that, maybe something a little more catchy, but anyway, to provide us some qualitative ideas, tips, tricks, trends, et cetera, et cetera. If you would find that interesting, please do me a favor, DM me on LinkedIn. I would love to hear what you would like us to talk about relative to qualitative research. With that, have a great rest of your day.